0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: With me now is Dr. Christian Lutprecht, Queens University and Royal Military College professor, international security expert. He's a fellow at the NATO College in Rome, and uh, one of his books is Security cooperation governance and is published by the university of michigan press christian thank you very much uh, for joining us good afternoon Roy. good afternoon what's your sense about what the next moves are what happens next as far as the idf is concerned and uh, israel's decision to move forward and destroy hamas
2: Yeah, so look, I think there's a a ground invasion is inevitable. And I think this is what the flurry of activity has been about by, in particular, some of the uh, senior Western politicians, the German Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, the German Chancellor, and, of course, the trip by President Biden. Because my sense is that the Biden administration doesn't trust uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. There's a personal incentive by Benjamin Netanyahu to make sure he keeps the right-wing partners in his coalition on side. These are partners that have not just been militating, of course, for uh, a ground invasion, but are also partners that have previously expressed sympathies towards uh, what could ostensibly um, amount to ethnic cleansing of the uh, of the Gaza Strip. Uh, and major concern in Western capitals that any ground invasion uh, would not just cause uh, the conflict to widen into the West Bank, uh, Lebanon, possibly Hezbollah uh, also from Syria. um, uh, That would be a major distraction for the United States from uh, the priorities in Ukraine and China and fighting Islamist... uh um, terrorism, but also more broadly, that uh, this could uh, light a very serious spark in the Middle East. I mean, many of these countries are very volatile. Um, the home populations are very upset. Uh, countries such as Jordan, or so, uh, and so uh, this could. Uh, uh, the the this I think this is a far more serious situation for many of the regimes in the in the in the region uh, than the Arab Spring ever was. And so we're sitting on a powder cake here, and this is why. Everybody's trying to convince Israel that, on the one hand, yes, it's important to make sure that Hamas does no longer have the capabilities uh, to commit these types of atrocities that make Hamas akin to ISIS. It's important to delegitimize Hamas's capacity to govern uh, in Gaza, but at the same time, we have to do it in a way that uh,
0: doesn't uh, cause a major conflagration of this conflict. This is a big issue, major issue for governments in the region, as you said, and uh, the demonstration in Cairo. Yesterday, pro-Palestinian uh, chanting was going on, and they had the cries from the uh, Arab Spring, bread, freedom, social justice. So that was heard during the Arab Spring. We're hearing it again, again now. So it's a, a very uh, tricky, it's probably a better word than that, um, balancing act for the governments in the Middle East. Look, I
2: mean, in, in Jordan, uh, there was very serious concerns around Friday prayers yesterday that this was going to escalate. Um, there are multiple very significant roadblocks trying to prevent um, uh, the population from marching on the um, uh, from marching on the West Bank, uh, and there are serious concerns by both Egypt and Jordan. I mean, one of the hypocrisies in the Middle East is that everybody is sympathetic. Uh, to Palestinians in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. But at the same time, none of the countries in the region want the Palestinian refugees. And so uh, President al-Sisin in Egypt was very uh, clear um, about that. Um, uh, the, this is, you know, on the, on the one hand, because uh, they don't want to give in to um, Israeli sort of right-wing extremist sort of wishes of, of fearing um parts of uh, parts of the land, but on the other hand, these are all countries that already have serious challenges with the Palestinian refugees that they've been hosting effectively for decades. And look, I mean, in a country like Jordan, um, there are twice as many youths um, entering the labor market as there are jobs. They have a twenty percent unemployment rate, and these are all countries that are whose economies are still extremely shaken from the uh, economy uh, from the pandemic. Uh, so you have uh, a large uh, swath of very disaffected uh, youth, in particular young men, with uh, no real economic prospects, no real political prospects. Uh, no economic prospects means they also have little prospect of starting a family or so. And so you can see how this is a uh, when people see no f- no hope and no future. Um, uh, these are circumstances where they are much more willing to resort to violent measures that otherwise they uh, they might not. So this is a an extremely volatile situation, and I think uh, we we too readily underestimate not just how volatile the situation um, within Israel and the occupied territories is, um,
0: but how volatile the situation in the region more broadly is. And internationally, we have these massive pro-Hamas demonstrations that are taking place. Some people were saying that yesterday in London, I don't have any verification on this, but up to 100,000 demonstrators were present in London. Um, European nations are, in fact, taking action against pro-Hamas demonstrators, including deportation being uh, threatened. And yet, let's talk about this country. Christian, Justin Trudeau remains unwilling to accept that Israel did not bomb the Gaza Hospital, even after Israel presented its evidence to the world, even after the President of the United States made it clear that the U.S. stands by Israel's intelligence, and American intelligence says that it was a terrorist missile, a misfire which impacted the Gaza Hospital, AP, Associated Press, which was very quick to jump onto the idea of uh, Israeli bombing of the hospital is now saying that wasn't the case, they're convinced that it was um, um, a missile, uh, Palestinian uh, um, organization's missile that impacted the hospital. What is the, uh, what is, how is Canada viewed in all of this? We used to be very, we used to be significant. So it's,
2: um, I think much of the political messaging has been absolutely terrible around this. I mean, that uh, just to make sure and very clear from the outset that this is a war between Hamas and the state of Israel. This is not a war between um, the Palestinian people per se and the Jewish people or whatever it, uh, it, it might be. Yes, there's a broader conflict in the region, but in our political messaging, we have failed to separate the immediate war and atrocities um, uh, committed here. Um, from, the, uh, from the broader challenges uh, around the conflict. And I think you can see in the popular mind and in the demonstrations um, that uh, the people have a hard time keeping those apart. But I think as a government, it is important to be principled. And when we live in, a di- in as diverse society as we do in Canada, it is incumbent upon all levels of government to call out any manifestations or sympathies for extremist violence or violent extremism, regardless of what communities they come from. And ultimately, we cannot have, well, people inherently will sympathize with uh, particular religious, ethnic groups, and so forth. um, We cannot in a country as diverse as Canada, have people then import effectively the conflict to this country. And I'm very concerned that for largely boutique electoral reasoning, the federal government has not come out and been as clear and as principled as it needs to be on the one hand in condemning violent extremism and on the other hand, being very clear that this humanitarian suffering that is being inflicted is also uh, as equally um, as equally unacceptable and so uh, I think this is a this will come back to haunt us um as a society because effectively what the failure in appropriate political messaging has done has further polarized Um, uh, Canadian society, and I think the last thing we needed was more polarization.
0: Yeah. Iran's uh, participation in all of this, Iran's engagement, Iran has consistently threatened Israel with being wiped off the map, uh, has been funding Hamas, is funding Hezbollah, certainly providing a lot of money to Hezbollah, is funding all sorts of efforts that are anti-Israel. What's what's Iran's interest now, Christian? Are they... uh, are they are they thoroughly uh, engaged in what's going on now or are they just um, pulling some strings but not all of them
2: Well, look, I mean, Iran is obviously going to feel emboldened. They just had a deal with the United States where they got $6 billion in return for five American hostages that were being held by Iran. All this is part of the Biden administration's strategy to keep the Middle East quiet. Well, we can see how well uh, the Biden foreign policy in terms of keeping the Middle East quiet is uh, is working out uh, for all of us. And it should be a word of caution for us all that... Um, You know, I've long said we can't leave international security up to the Americans. And the problem with the enfeebled and emaciated foreign policy and the extreme harm that this government, the current government, has done to Canada's reputation and credibility in the world, uh, where it's effectively turned foreign policy into an extension of domestic policy uh, that in many ways operates uh, in the best electoral interest of the Liberal Party of Canada, not in the best interests of Canada as a country, uh, and our national interests has meant that Canada uh, no longer has the capacity, the tools, the standing, the reputation to provide a counterpiece uh, to, for instance, um, the the way the United States is unilaterally pursuing its own particular its own particular interests. Think back to 1956, the Suez Crisis. Uh, where Lester B. Pearson was, of course, the kingmaker, basically inventing peacekeeping to preserve regional stability and to keep a broader um, conflagration of the conflict that could bring the superpowers uh, into a nuclear conflict with one another. Clearly, um, Canada has an interest the same today, making sure there's no broader conflict, making sure it preserves regional stability. Our Minister of Foreign Affairs travels to the region and basically can't get, uh, basically can't get any meetings. Um, You know, it it shows that, unfortunately, uh, Canada is no longer a serious player, and this is very much to the detriment here. And, uh, you know, it's important because countries such as Iran, what's Iran's broader strategy? It is to weaken Israel. Iran and Hamas want to draw Israel into a broader conflict. They want the ground invasion. They want maximum suffering by uh, the Palestinian population in Gaza and want to televise and visualize that globally. um, Because if Israel gets drawn in, it will weaken Israel militarily politically, economically, and that inherently is going to work to Iran's uh, benefit. Uh, It will destroy whatever is left over from the Oslo Accords. It would essentially destroy the Abram Accords. Uh, It would uh, forsake any prospect of peace between Saudi Arabia uh, and, uh, uh, and Israel. And the broader challenge, of course, is the person who's really laughing is Vladimir Putin look i mean but, uh it's it's it distracts the united states from uh, from the war in ukraine it distracts the united states from uh, containing china but really i mean Uh, It's the challenge of sort of the the doublespeak, because in effect, uh, what Israel is doing in Gaza is very similar to some of the things that Russia is doing in Ukraine. And so Putin has been saying quite publicly, look, I mean, uh, the United States is backing Israel and doing sort of uh, rather similar things as in Ukraine. Of course, the catalyst and the causes uh, are hardly comparable, uh, but certainly this entire conflict has played dramatically into
0: Vladimir Putin's hands. Yeah, who's now uh, President Xi of China's best friend. Um, I'm gonna be speaking with Alexander Sherba a little bit later on this program today, Christian, the former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria. He was a member of the diplomatic mission of Ukraine to the United States. And he was a Ukrainian ambassador at large following the 2014 invasion by Russia and the annexation of uh, Crimea. We're 600 days plus. Into the into the war between Ukraine and uh, and and Putin's Russia, and there's been a tremendous amount of emotional capital expended. There's been a tremendous amount of financial capital expended on the, on this particular war. It's still being expended, uh, and the, with the with the intent of driving Putin and his troops out of Ukraine. But when you have a situation a crisis such as the one that's in in, in place now, in in the Middle East. Ukraine starts to, I think for a lot of people, slide off the radar. And there's a lot of talk among certain politicians in the United States about we don't want to fund Ukraine anymore, we've given them way too much, and they don't need anymore. This is a wasted cause. How do you see what's happening in uh, Ukraine and how significant is that particular war? To me, it's still one of it, it's still something that we have to absolutely stay focused on.
2: Well, I think this is precisely Biden's concern and why he traveled to the region, why Olaf Scholz also traveled uh, to, uh, to Israel. Because the concern is that essentially Benjamin Netanyahu, in his attempts to stay out of jail... Uh, is going to instrumentalize his right wing coalition and the Israeli army uh, in a conflict where he knows that he has much of the West behind him and uh, and backing him because the West doesn't have any other options, but that this will dramatically distract from uh, ultimately the priority of making sure uh, we contain both Russia and, uh, and China. And so um, make no mistake, when you have unannounced King Abdullah flying to Berlin telling the German Chancellor that the Middle East is about to go on major, um, uh, you're about to have a major bushfire on your hands. Um, When you have Olaf Scholz and President Biden uh, on very short notice, unplanned, traveling to the Middle East uh, to meet with Benjamin Netanyahu, you can see that there's considerable concern uh, around uh, containing, um, uh, containing the Israeli response here and this is not to say that of course Israel is not justified in making sure that uh, atrocities Hamas cannot commit future atrocities against it uh, but uh, look with a with an army of 360,000 reservists uh, Israel is not going to be able to launch um, a ground offensive that is going to tear out Hamas from uh, from Gaza Uh, let alone if Hezbollah decides to start a two-front war. This would effectively draw the United States into the conflict. It would likely mean U.S. Marines going back into Lebanon. uh, And that would mean then uh, there would be very little attention and very little bandwidth for Ukraine, which is, of course, what Vladimir Putin has long been hoping for, which is him playing for time in the sense that the West might lose interest in Ukraine. uh, And we're very close to that
0: risk. Final question for you is, uh, how does all of this potentially affect this country and Canadians? Um, pardon me, Roy, I didn't hear that. How does, how does all of what's going on now in the Middle East and in Ukraine, how does this potentially or realistically affect this country and Canadians? Um, I think we are at one of the most dangerous moments that we have lived in the
2: world in recent decades. Um, and uh, that the Canadian federal government needs to pay very close attention to what's going on in the world. The Canadian government needs to urgently get re-engaged in the world, and the Canadian government needs to urgently upscale on both its foreign policy and its defense policy to be able to have the credibility, the capacity, and the capability to ensure that it has the means, ways, and ends to assert Canada's national interests, and not simply abdicate those interests to the United States and to other allies and to drift behind them, because uh, I think
0: that is not serving our country and our interests well. Jody Wilson-Raybould was bullied and pressured to persuade the Federal Prosecution Service to not go ahead with a criminal trial, criminal charge against Essentia Levna which is not exactly uh, in possession of a stellar international record for the most ethical business practices. And Tony Wilson-Raybould said, no, she was on this program. She told us what went on as much as she could until Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet cut her off. She wasn't allowed to tell any more. She wanted to share more with Canadians, but she wasn't allowed to because of cabinet confidence. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. Back up. Stephen Harper ran into that situation when he was prime minister, and he freed the people in question to speak, not Mr. Trudeau. Of course, Mr. Trudeau ran into some significant trouble with his self-appointed ethics commissioner, Mr. Mario Dion, because Mr. Trudeau's self-appointed ethics commissioner found Mr. Trudeau guilty of ethics violations, uh, violating the Parliamentary Conflict of Interest Act. Oh, wait a minute. Let me go back to the beginning. When Mr. Trudeau was confronted by national media with the first story that had been in interference with Jody Wilson Raybould, based on the Globe and Mail story, Mr. Trudeau stared, remember this? Stared into the uh, television cameras and he said, False. Well, no. True. Not false, true. So this is still a big issue. We never have received an appropriate answer, a true answer, a full answer as to what went on. But we're so complacent in this country, okay, fine, then you don't wanna tell us, that's fine. When's the hockey game on, honey? No, 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 no. This is important. It's important. You can always PVR the hockey game. This is important. Canadians were not informed. Believe me, when the next election rolls around, I have a shopping list of issues that I'll bet you a lot of people have forgotten about. Not me, pas moi. Anyway, Democracy Watch is a wonderful organization, and they keep the government's provincial, federal honest because they go after them. In court. They don't back off. They don't back down. Duff Conacher is the co founder of Democracy Watch. And it's a wonderful organization, as I said, democracywatch.ca. So, um, Duff, thank you for coming on the show. How are you today?
3: My pleasure, Roy.
0: Did I, well.
3: did I screw that up at all? Did I get everything right? No, that's right. It's a deferred prosecution with a negotiated remediation agreement uh where SNC Lavala essentially promises to take steps to clean things up internally and as a result does not get prosecuted. So big time community service. Uh internal restructuring in terms of their internal mechanisms right. to stop yeah. the uh rampant bribery that they were involved in around the world.
4: Yes. Yeah. And-, and
3: um So that included getting new board members and things like that. But again, it's a big issue because if they were prosecuted and convicted, they would not be eligible to bid on any World Bank-funded projects for 10 years. Uh, They would be prohibited from uh, bidding on federal government and some provincial government projects in Canada as well, who have prohibitions on, uh, on anyone who's been convicted from receiving government money. Uh had big implications for them. They were lobbying. There was evidence of unregistered lobbying by SNC-Lavalin. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why you need to know the cabinet communication records to really know what uh, went on. And the RCMP didn't even really try to get them. They just which is, which um, is... relied on the claims made by prime minister and his staff and, and other ministers. Um, Foreign Finance Minister Bill Morneau and his staff and others in the PMO and uh, the Clerk of the Privy Council, Mike Wernick, and just relied on what they all said. And, of course, what they said was we did nothing wrong. I remember that
0: so very clearly, and I remember those parliamentary committee votes. Five to four. Liberals five. Rest of the world four. Uh, or the NDP would would help them out as they're still helping them out. But this is very, very serious business. When I said community service, I'm talking about big boys community service. That's what uh, SNC-Lavlan was let off with. Mr. Trudeau was talking about, well, we're only doing this to save, what was it, nine nine trillion jobs in Quebec? I'm I'm, I'm only marginally exaggerating. Um, But I know the RCMP won't investigate me, just like they're not investigating what went on. Um, Duff... This has just been a mess, and it's been allowed to slide under the table. Now, what was it that you demanded of the RCMP, and how did they, and I have other questions for you, but how did they most fundamentally roll over for the federal government?
3: Well, um, people in Alberta, people in Ontario will be uh, aware of situations there, one with regard to Jason Kenney's. Uh, leadership race, and some allegations around what happened with some people involved in that. And in Ontario, the Greenbelt scandal. And I'm mentioning those because by comparison, what did the RCMP do in both of those situations? They announced that they were investigating, even though the people involved all said they did nothing wrong. And when you investigate, then you go to court and you get search warrants to get the internal communication records on every device that people use. And presumably in Ontario with the Greenbelt scandal, the RCMP will be doing that. And you get that information and those records because that tells you what people actually said to each other uh, about the situation and, and whether they were doing something wrong and knew they were doing something wrong. Uh, What happened in SNC-Lavalin's situation, the RCMP in August 2019 said they were examining the situation, and then they said nothing else until June of 2023, almost four years later. They did a very superficial investigation. They only talked to three people. They didn't talk to anyone who was alleged to have done wrong, Prime Minister and all the others. And they reviewed the ethics commissioner's report that found Trudeau uh, guilty of violating the federal ethics laws you mentioned, but they didn't ask anybody for proof of anything that they had claimed to the ethics commissioner. And the ethics commissioner didn't have access to the secret cabinet communication records either and said it was a major problem, uh, but he decided to issue a ruling anyway. Uh, and then... They were doing what they called an assessment. It really was an investigation, and they should have announced publicly they were investigating. But they did this assessment. The top brass in the RCP gets that assessment report in March of 2021 and sits on it until January of 2023. Say that again. Say, say that again, please. They received the initial assessment report from the investigating officer in March of 2021. And they did not make a decision about whether to investigate further or let everyone off until January twenty twenty three. Which to me is just a a, that's a cover up. Like you're just trying to bury the investigation, let the delay go on, hoping everyone just forgets about it. And we filed an access to information request under the federal open government law in July of twenty twenty two. And I think that's what forced them to finally wrap something up because they're required to disclose uh, the information uh, about uh, information records when an investigation is, is finished. And so they either had to say the investigation was ongoing or disclose the records. In May of 2023, almost a year after we filed our request, so, which violates the federal open government law by about 11 months, they did issue a letter to us. The RCMP sent us a letter saying, We can't disclose anything because the investigation's ongoing. That was false. The Access Information Division of the RCMP didn't even know that the Investigation Division of the RCMP had wrapped up its investigation four and a half months earlier. Uh, and it was also false. They disclosed us about 100 pages to us, but all of them were blank. And they said, That's it, that's all. And then in July oh, of 2023, Uh, a couple of months ago, they said, oh, actually there's 4,000 pages of records and we're reviewing them all now and we'll disclose them to you. They're still withholding more than 2,200 pages. Why? More than a year after we requested them. Why? They were supposed to to disclose all the pages by September, 2022. Here we are in October, 2023, and we're still waiting for more than half the pages, 2,200 pages, at least maybe more that they have still not disclosed to us. Why? They say they're cabinet confidences. Um, Now, this is weird. Cabinet confidences are essentially advice to cabinet and decision-making records of cabinet. So what does the RCMP have? Like, why do they have cabinet confidence records? Because according to their investigation reports, the, the pages they did disclose to us, The Trudeau cabinet refused to allow them to look at cabinet confidences. The RCMP is not supposed to be checking with cabinet about investigating a possible crime, and yet they're withholding 2,200 pages that they say are cabinet confidences maybe they have to check. It's just, it smells so badly in every possible way that we need a public inquiry, and that's what we're calling for. I don't know that we're going to get it, but we are getting at least one day of hearing on Monday. The RCMP commissioner and the investigating officer uh, who was the lead investigator are appearing before the House Ethics Committee in the afternoon and for questioning about why they didn't fully investigate and why no one was prosecuted.
0: And they are, as you pointed out in an email to me, that they're violating the Access to Information Act. This is the police force. This is the National Police Service. That is supposedly investigating, and they said they were, but now we know, you know what that results in. In this particular case, the word cozy comes to mind. But the, between the relationship between this national police force of ours and this federal government of ours, it's just cozy. Is that do yeah, the, You, do you the, think the, that's
3: fair? The cabinet of the cabinet appoints the commissioner, yeah. which is not the way it should be. It, no, it, it has to be a nonpartisan, independent process for choosing everyone who enforces laws. You cannot have the ruling party choosing the heads of organizations who enforce laws that apply to the ruling party. That's just the bad way to do it. And there's been other questions about the commissioner who was in charge for this whole time period, Brenda Lucky, Uh Questions about how, whether she was doing the cabinet's bidding in response to the mass shooting in Nova Scotia and That's that right. investigation. Um, what she was doing with regard to the convoy, where she texted, uh, was communicating with the chief of police in Ottawa and said, can we use texts because texts are easier easier to delete, which is illegal. It's illegal to delete records under the federal uh, open government and transparency law. There's serious questions about her and her performance and, and how much she was covering for cabinet in other these other situations. and. Uh, we just don't have the internal records of what the top officers did with so, the assessment report that they received in March 2021. So, Duff. That's being withheld.
0: So, Duff, it's kind of like you'd have to wear, if you wanted to go and investigate this up close, you'd have to wear a hazmat suit because the smell's so bad.
3: Yeah. In every single way, when you look at it, you have a superficial investigation. You have the RCMP not even trying to get secret cabinet communication records that would really tell you the the story of what happened, burying the investigation with an almost two-year delay, misleading the public by claiming there wasn't even an investigation. When there was, it was superficial, but they were investigating. And violating the open government law by keeping the investigation records secret for a a year longer than is allowed. And still refusing to disclose 2,200 pages, more than a year later. And
0: if we go back to the genesis of this... It was the PMO and Mr. Trudeau who was trying to force Jody Wilson-Raybould, the Solicitor General, General, Minister of Justice, to influence the prosecutorial service to not move forward with the criminal charge against SNC and Lavlin. And they weren't telling the truth when they told Canadians why they thought it was important to maintain cabinet conf- confidence, uh, confidentiality, whatever that is. Uh, because it saves jobs everywhere, they weren't telling the truth then. Because the Lablan CEO stepped up and said, "That's just not the case." I mean, this this really has a terrible odor to it.
3: So, what it what are the what are it's the options? Democratic good government principles are that everyone in politics should be honest. Yeah. So there's there's dishonesty in this situation. Yeah. Transparent. There's yeah. There's excessive secrecy. Yeah. Ethical. There's unethical behavior, and. uh Also, to prevent uh, waste, and this has wasted a lot of resources by dragging this out uh, for so long, and uh, wasted, of course, tons of of time and staff time within the RCMP, the way they've handled these access to information requests, dragging them out as well. So, in every way, in every way that you... Uh, could act that that violates democratic government principles, this situation has it. That's why it smells so bad, and that's why we need a public inquiry with an inquiry commissioner not chosen by the ruling party. It has to be an inquiry commissioner chosen by all the party leaders, just like we have now for foreign interference. That's a great precedent, and that's the way it should be done. Duff, I...
0: I'll talk to you this about this again. There's more to be talked about.
3: A great deal more, and we yes, will do a lot, that. A lot of news will come out tomorrow from, okay. this, uh, or from Monday from this ethics committee hearing okay. where the RCMP commissioner is going to be grilled.
0: I look forward by, to our
3: they, uh, covered things up like this.
0: I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Duff.
3: Thank you for your interest.
0: So, when Israel launches a ground offensive against Hamas in Gaza, what are the greatest challenges and obstacles the IDF will face? Should a wider war break out with Hezbollah engaging Israel from Lebanon to the north and possibly Syria, with Israel fighting on at least three fronts, what are the most likely scenarios? Dr. Luprek suggested at that point the Americans would put boots on the ground. And as powerful as the IDF is, can it engage successfully on two fronts simultaneously? Uh, there's also the situation in Ukraine, and we spoke with uh, Ambassador Alexander Sherba earlier, they still need material and uh, an unabated support. Is Ukraine falling off the international radar? I was asking the ambassador about that. My guest is General Rick Hillier, Canadian Armed Forces, of course, retired former chief of the defense staff. Uh, his books are a soldier first and leadership. And uh, if you ask to any, ask any member of the Canadian Armed Forces who served with General Hillier, you inevitably, in all sorts of ways,
1: got two thumbs up. General, how are you? Hey, Roy, I'm uh, I'm excellent. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on the show again. Again.
0: Well, well you're always welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, you are a your yours is a voice of credibility at a time we really need it.
1: Um, well, thank you for that.
0: When you when you observed what was going on with Hamas in Israel on October the 7th, so two weeks ago today, the atrocities against Israeli civilians. What were you thinking?
1: Well, uh, you know, first of all, like, just tragic. My goodness. You know, we're all human beings. Uh, We love our children. We worry about our children. We worry about, you know, aged parents or aged relatives. And to see that group, you know, that group slaughtered, and, and people dying on both sides of the of the military operations, uh, it's just tragic. You know, you might, your heart goes out and you say, there must be a better way. And then you realize that, you know, we just simply cannot seem to find a better way. But I also reflect back and just think, oh, my Lord, it didn't have to be this way. Remember back in, uh, and I read history and I love this stuff and, I remember back in 1997 or 1998, I think it was, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton landed in Gaza City and was welcomed there by tens of thousands, if not more people on the ground and by the authorities there and by Israel. And the population was ready for a nonviolent future, uh, some kind of relationship with Israel And unfortunately, after that, it went straight downhill, leading to the uh, 2006 uh, horrible, horrible fighting, a mosque creeping in and being tolerated by the authorities there and Israel not being on the ground. And I think actually that led us to right where we are now. And I also reflect back that, oh, my goodness, what if Yitzhak Rabin had not been assassinated? Uh, Because he was the guy who was leading... You know the charge because he realized how important it was for peace and for a two-state solution, and, and was working with the United States in particular, but the Arab the Arab world in general, the Palestinians specifically. Uh, he could have put that in place if he'd had a few more years. And there, but for the grace of God, goes you know freedom uh, when Yitzak sac- uh, and stability and peace when Yitzhak sac- will uh, was assass- assassinated because of those views. Uh, it's tragic. It, is, it has been tragic. I watch what unfolds uh, based on the videos that you see taken by the Hamas murderers and, and barbarians. I, I see the bombs that drop and, and people that are killed, and it is just tragic. It wounds me and say, it didn't have to be like this. We had a better start 25 years ago. Why couldn't we have carried on?
0: So here we are on the 21st of October, 2023, two weeks after that murderous assault by Hamas on uh, Israeli s- civilians and uh, the State of Israel said, um, "We are going to wipe you out. We're going to, we're going to destroy you." The IDF is uh, is massed on the border of Gaza. They're keeping a wary eye to the north and Hezbollah in Lebanon. General Hillier, how do you assess the military situation? If they go, well, not if when they go in on the ground, and there's been a lot of speculation, it probably be or could be tomorrow when they go in. What do you expect will happen?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I don't think there's any question of them going in. People have been saying, you know, I haven't gone yet. They haven't gone yet. There are many, many steps that the Israelis want to occur before they actually do go in. That starts with, you know, securing their back door uh, in Lebanon and in Syria and ensuring that regionally they're not going to be stabbed from somewhere else during that time frame. Obviously, development of their intelligence, development of their their relationships around the world and their and their, their relationship with the United States of America is crucial to that. They want to continue to build international support. They want to keep you know President Joe Biden visiting Israel was was a brilliant, I think, act on his part because in a way I think he bypassed completely a, a usually contentious prime minister. He related directly to so many Israelis and therefore the Israeli people brought the American support with him by the president being there. I mean, how incredible is that? And I think that part was absolutely crucial. So Israel's got a whole lot of things it wants to do, including getting all those reserves mobilized, getting them in place, getting some training, refreshing, because urban operations, fighting in built-up areas, or fibua as we used to call it, that is a brutal kind of, uh, of combat. Secondly, or third or fourth or fifth, depending on where you are on my list here. They want to gather information in great, great detail, information and then intelligence. Information allows them to know where the populations are, uh, where the tunnels are, uh, where the centers of of populations could be, and where perhaps a mass is planning on uh, defending or what they're going to do or how they're going to do it. Intelligence is really more specific information, which is where are the mass leaders uh, where are their sort of command and control nodes from where they will send out usually runners rather than people rather than try to do it over cell phones, And I, even though they will use those. And then while they're doing all of that, and these things are in secret in, in priority, but they're also done. In parallel. So while you're gathering information, gathering intelligence and building regional support and building support across the world, you're actually starting to act on what you know. And that's why we've seen all those airstrikes taking out the tunnels underneath and uh, who has not seen a a bomb or a missile go in and then just a plume of smoke and explosion straight upwards. And that means they've hit one of those many, many tunnels or command node that's uh, buried in a tunnel. So they're taking action all that the same way. But they're simply building, and they'll decide when they will go in. It could be a day or two. It could be another week or two. I don't think much longer than that uh, because they also are hoping that many of the 700,000 to a million people in northern Gaza can move south out of the combat zone and let them do that part first. So they're going in. It's going to be the most brutal operation. Uh, It's difficult. There are going to be numerous casualties on both sides or all sides, the Hamas terrorists, the Palestinians who are the innocent population that lives there, and the Israeli soldiers that are going in.
0: General, do you see, and I talked to a number of people about this today, do you have concerns, do you see the development potentially of a wider Middle East war With all of the demonstrations that are taking place, the cautious steps that are being taken by leaders and governments in other Middle Eastern countries now, as they're looking at the size of the demonstrations, they're seeing the anger in their their national populations. Can you see this becoming a, a regional war?
1: Well, I have great fears that it would, yes. This all goes back to Iran. Without question, if Iran, who has provided at least 90% of the weaponry and the, and the instigation and the manipulation and the training to the Hamas, uh murderers who killed all those innocent people who have hijacked the population of about 2 million. It all goes back to them influencing and making this happen. It all goes back to Hezbollah, what they are doing, how they are supported. all goes back to Iran. And equally, what's happening in Syria goes back to Iran supporting Assad. Uh, Iran wants a a Middle East, a region that is tumultuous, chaotic, unsettled, insecure, violent. That way they can manipulate it to their heart's delight. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, not in Iran, obviously, but the Arabian Gulf, the, uh, the GCC. And every one of those countries is frightened of what Iran could do because they know it wants that instability and violence. Iran is the natural enemy of every single other state uh, in In the Middle East, and therefore, could it trigger something? could it cause something to occur? Could it act really stupidly and cause a regional war? Yes, it could. I think they would be well advised to not because the firepower that could be utilized against them is vast and would come from numerous countries uh, hacking in concert, not just the United States of America, not just Israel. Maybe Israel wouldn't be engaged at all. But uh, yeah, I do worry about the fact that we could have a regional war without question, Uh, and obviously everybody wants to, you know, fingers are crossed that we will not have that. But, you know, wishing for something does not make necessarily it come true. I think the Americans, again, moving those two carrier battle groups in, uh, a naval task force in the Red Sea. It's got a massive U.S. capability and other nations in the Arabian Sea. And I think those things are going to be sending a very clear message to Iran yeah, we know that you're meddling, we know that you're manipulating, we know that you're causing these deaths. That's the extent of it. We're going to eliminate those links that you have. Don't do anything more because you will suffer uh, incredibly. Do I worry about it, though? Yes, I do.
0: Yeah. Uh, looking at Ukraine, do you have concern that it's slipping from the international radar, perhaps, at this time?
1: Uh, Roy, let me go back, if I could, please. be Be, be gentle with me. Let me go back what... Something else you mentioned that I did not comment upon, which is the worldwide demonstrations in support of Hamas, and not in support of Palestinians or uh, two, you know, a two-state solution. Which, by the way, has has had opportunity and been offered at least five times uh, in 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 less than a century, and and has been turned down. And and I watched those uh, demonstrations, and yeah, I'm quite I'm quite comfortable that people come out and they advocate for. Uh, Peace right now, or they advocate for humanitarian support. But well, what I see are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, around Canada, the U.S., and the world advocating for Hamas, those murderers, those people. Uh, the, that infamous movie line about it—it's it, doing a disservice to animals to call them animals. They're monsters, and monsters they are. Can you imagine what we would, how we would respond in Canada if a year and a half ago, six hundred and something days ago, we had Russians? in the tens of thousands out saying, kill your kill your kill Ukraines," uh, or or any other group, we would be apoplectic. We would be angry. Can you imagine if we had Nazi groups out saying, you know, kill Jews? We would be apoplectic, and I think we should be uh, with some of the protests. Yeah, there's a free speech issue, but not when you're supporting a terrorist group, which Canada has said, by the way, is a terrorist group. Yeah. Uh, so I think how we've handled this has been cowardly, quite frankly
0: it it has been general and it's been commented on, and I'm glad you I'm glad you uh, you wanted to speak to this because it does reflect on this country and the uh, the government has been very timid and or they've been manipulative, taking an international crisis and trying to apply it to their domestic issues and trying to get votes. Um,
3: well, it's well, my is assessment. not Roy
1: really an opportunity to look at the political polling and what it would do. This is where ethics have to stand. This is what our country is about. Are we on the good side of history here or are we on the bad side of history because we want some votes and we're afraid to say something, afraid to act in that ethical manner uh, because of votes? Uh, That would be appalling. Not the first time it would have happened in history uh, and indeed not in this country, but that would be appalling.
0: General Hillier, this is why people admire you so much and stand with what you say, because what you say is what you believe, and what you believe is what most of us do believe. Most Many people don't have the, I don't know, uh, the wherewithal to step forward, don't want to, uh, but I, I appreciate every word that you've said. General Hillier, and we have a national, international responsibility. We were massively important in 1956, which was pointed out by a previous guest in the Suez crisis, with Lester Pearson getting the uh, Nobel Prize for Peace, uh, then becoming Prime Minister of Canada. We're we're nowhere near, We don't have anywhere near the credibility now internationally we used to have, well, and that's too bad. Boy,
1: what we had then was leadership. Yeah, Mike Pearson was yeah. a leader. Yeah, Mike Pearson was a leader, and we've had leaders since that time. But we're you know, when, when we look at leadership uh, across Canada now, it's kind of like a sucking chest wound uh, because it's awfully hard to find. And uh, we had leadership around Mike Pearson. And you can talk and, and, and dispute till the cows come home what he did, how he did it. But the man led a nation and brought a nation with him as opposed to reacting what, to what polling, you know, was. And something Henry Ford once said, you know, if he had asked customers, potential customers, what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Well, instead, he he believed that he had the solution to what they wanted, and they just didn't know how to articulate it. And that's what leaders do. They provide that solution to the better place where a nation wants to go, and they bring the people with them by the articulation, the eloquence of their arguments to do so. We haven't seen that. What
0: about Ukraine, General? We have about uh, two minutes. Uh, I spoke with the former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria ambassador at large after 2014 and the annexation of Crimea by Russia. Alexander Sherbo was on the program about an hour ago. Uh, What what concerns do you have for Ukraine at this particular juncture?
1: Uh, Frankly, I articulated my concerns about a year and a quarter ago. Said, you know, uh, Putin favors the long war. He's got resources. We talk about how his economy has been impacted negatively, et cetera. Yeah, it is. But actually, then they're changing it, and in some respects, making it more robust. And the people around Putin who owe their allegiance to him are getting more powerful, richer. If if they really need to be any richer than they already are, and and, and they've got more resources, they've got more people. And he really, Putin really doesn't care how many Russian soldiers die or how many, how much deprivation Russia has to put up with as long as he comes out on the winning side of the stick here and and sort of reestablishes that Russian empire. So he doesn't care how many people die. He's in for the long game. The long game is against Ukraine. You know, we hear about the Russian casualties. We don't hear much about Ukrainian casualties. They're losing a lot of young men and women and obviously a lot of civilians also. And how much longer they can keep doing that is anybody's guess. But what I worried about were events like just occurring right now in the Middle East, taking attention away from the West, pretty much united front uh, in support of Ukraine. Uh, Russia can come out from China, from North Korea, from Iran, uh, and from others uh, with weapons and artillery shells and to, to support in what they're doing. We in the West, as a united front of democracies, have to keep ensuring that Ukraine gets it from us also. Okay. Uh, you know, the, one of the great challenges in, in the United States is that there's no champion in the armed services of the U.S. uh, for Ukraine. And the reason for that is they're watching the rest of the world. And so you say, I'm going to send three new air defense batteries to Ukraine, and they'll come out of the Pacific region. Well, the commander of Pacific Command will say to the president, Mr. President, you know, in two years, we could be at war with China. Are you no. going to denude me of my air defense to send it to Ukraine right now? Because I will not be able to meet my mission set if you do that, General Hillier. So we've got a great we've got a great challenge, as a matter of fact. Uh, the long game is Putin's hard to keep our eye on Ukraine, uh, but I think for the good of democracies, the good of the worldwide stability. Given in mind that China is watching this, right. North Korea is watching this, and how we're going to stand by Ukraine and Israel. Uh, we need to make sure we don't lose our eye on that ball, also. All right, General. It is equally strategically important.
0: General Hillier, always an honor to speak with you. Thank you for the time today, sir. Thank you so much.
1: Roy, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: We're going to be speaking now with our, who's going to be our next guest, but he's very kindly stepped in very quickly Professor Daniel Pipes, historian, um, East Islamism, and U.S. foreign policy analyst. Founder of the Middle East Forum. That's MEF for And his book is Israel Victory, Zionist Acceptance, Palestinian Liberation. Professor Pipes, thank you very much for
4: for stepping into the breach. How are you? Sure. Thanks for the invitation. I'm I'm well. By the way, it's meforum.org. And the book has just been submitted. It's not out yet. Oh, it's not out yet. Okay. So it's coming out. Yeah. Um,
0: would you like assess, assess for us, please, uh, Hamas and its, its murder, rapes and kidnappings, including murdering and kidnapping infants? And the fact that in the Middle East and in many areas of the world, there continues to be pro-Hamas demonstrations, massive demonstration in London for this organization, which you describe as being affiliated with, with ISIS. And that's the Israeli position as well.
4: Well, you raised two questions, one about Hamas itself and the other about the response Mm -hmm. internationally. Um, I don't think Hamas is actually uh, institutionally connected to ISIS. What it is, is part of the same Islamist and jihadist movement. The ideology is the same. These are Muslims who seek to take medieval practices, laws institutions, mentalities, and apply them in the modern era. If the Iranian government subscribes to it, the Turkish government subscribes to it, you can have more radical, less radical versions of it. But it's all one big movement of Islamism. And when it's violent like this, it's jihadism. So yeah, that's who they are. They're not Palestinian nationalists. That's the people in the West Bank. These are Islamists. And that's unfortunately a word that hasn't been brought up. It's, it's as though this were a kind of natural disaster, just happened. No, it's, it's, it's part of an ideology. As for the international repercussions, this is most extraordinary thing that Hamas has, since it took over in Gaza in 2007, it has exploited its subject population. Which is somewhere between one and two million. We don't really know. Um, exploited them as 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 cannon fodder, but a very unusual kind of cannon fodder. Cannon fodder is usually you know people, soldiers who are used indiscriminately uh, to to make gains on the battlefield. Think of Bakhmut in Ukraine and the Wagner prison recruits. That's the usual form. But in the Hamas case, they don't want to win on the battlefield. They want to lose on the battlefield. They want to take uh, casualties. They want to have deaths. Because they have found, as you pointed out, when they take deaths, they have an international uh, support. And the more deaths, the more support. uh, Because there is sympathy, both among fellow Islamists and on the far left, for their attack on Israel. So the more deaths they take, the better they do on campuses, on streets, uh, and and, uh, beyond. So what they did on the 7th of October
0: in Israel does not surprise you. Their actions don't surprise you. Their barbarism doesn't surprise you.
4: No, what does surprise me was the Israeli failure to stop them. That was a shock to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think including Hamas. Hamas did not expect, as much as said so, they expected a few deaths, a few hostages. They did not expect to rampage for hours, killing hundreds and hundreds and taking hundreds. And indeed, this may be a problem for them, because in some sense, they bit over bit more than they can chew. They're arousing anger in Israel that they didn't expect. So everyone, everyone, I believe, is surprised by Hamas' success and the Israeli
0: failure. There's also the concern about a second front developing in the north of Israel um, as uh, Hezbollah, which is much larger, much more powerful, much stronger, then Hamas is threatening to go in and, um, and start uh, a shooting. We'll have to see if it's a war or whether it's a limited exchange if the Israeli defense force, uh, as far as Hezbollah is concerned, is becoming too aggressive. I'm not sure how you uh, define too aggressive, Professor Pipes. Does does the IDF attack on Hamas have to destroy Hamas completely or focus on the leaders of the terror organization?
4: Well, I think both. Um, The leaders have to go, and so must the institutions. Um, Yes, Hamas must be destroyed. That is the goal of the operation and then that leads to the second point which is what next yeah and the reason the Israelis have abided by a Hamas and allowed it to attack now for 15 years is that they don't want to go back in they ruled uh, Gaza until 2005 and they left on their own voluntarily and they don't want to go back in and in general the alternatives for the future of Gaza tend to be rather dismal from the Israeli point of view, but I argued in a piece earlier this week that uh, there is a possibility that things could come out all right. And I refer back to what I said earlier about how Hamas had used the Gazan population as its uh, cannon fodder. It wanted them dead. And indeed, they did the same with the hospital bombing blast that happened a few days ago. They they, they flourish when they're dead in, in Gaza. Um, and as a result, the Gazan population is sick and tired of being exploited by Hamas. And I think there is a cohort, a substantial number of Gazans who are ready to work with Israel to build something normal, not something democratic, not something friendly to Israel necessarily, but normal, normal, not having rockets and missiles go off and incendiary kites and uh, tunnels and and so forth. Um, something normal. I think the Israelis will find that they can build a, a police force, an administration that can take over and will rule in a decent way. So I think there's some the possibility of something good coming out of the tragedy.
0: Now there are people who are calling for a return of authority in uh, Gaza to the Palestinian Authority. You don't like that idea at all?
4: No, that's, uh, I'd say, lunatic. One, Hamas, uh, sorry, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, is no better than Hamas. He's just as violent. And two, uh, Mahmoud Abbas has no power. He is incompetent, and corrupt, and as a result, he's a figurehead. He actually doesn't even control the town where he resides, Ramallah. So, no, that's a terrible idea. It's just making no change at all. Um,
0: What about Iran? How much of a player, how large a player, is Iran in this particular developing crisis? Was it a case Do you think Iran was motivated to push harder after it became clear that uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia... We're going to be creating a, a more agreeable relationship. Uh, did that factor in, do you think?
4: It could be. We don't know. It could be simply that uh, Hamas was ready for this attack, and so therefore took advantage of the moment. It could be that their uh, masters in Tehran told them this is time to go because we have our geopolitical reasons, as you just suggested. It could be something else. It could be the time of year. Who knows? We, we don't know. Definitely the Iranians supported them, but so did the Qatar government and the Turkish government, both of which are allies of the United States. Turkey is a NATO ally and Qatar is a so-called major non-NATO ally. So, um, it's yeah, Iran is part of the problem, but part of the problem are our own allies, and we have to reconsider whether they're allies. Should Turkey be a NATO? Should Qatar be allowed to invest That's vast amounts of money? To invest and influence American life and politics as it has been doing time to rethink these, these topics
0: thank you for listening to today's podcast if you want to hear more subscribe to the Roy Green show on Apple podcasts Google podcasts Spotify stitcher or wherever you find your favorites and if you like what you hear leave us a review and tell a friend I'm Roy Green have a great weekend